united, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. So as Emma and I sit down to record this special bonus pre-election episode of Barely Getting By, American Carnage, we are now five days out from the 2020 US presidential election. As historians, Emma and I are both extremely hesitant to make any solid or firm predictions about what's going to happen in the election, although regular listeners will be aware that we are generally pretty pessimistic about um, not only the election, but events surrounding the election. So we did think that we'd bring in a, a special guest for this week's episode to talk about the Trump presidency and to talk about, amongst other things, about issues around making a prediction in this most unpredictable of presidencies and election cycles. Um, so our guest today is Matt Bevan, who Emma has had some uh, some association with in the past. That's right. I think I sort of got my introduction to, to podcasting through Matt. Um, I think listeners will probably recognise his voice either from his role as a newsreader and reporter on RN Breakfast Radio or as the host of the ABC podcast, Russia, If You're Listening, which is how I met him because I came in on a guest a few times. Um, and in the latest iteration of that podcast, which is out now, which is called America, If You're Listening. So it was very kind of Matt to join us in what is an incredibly busy time for him. Yeah, so we spoke to Matt about his experience covering the Trump presidency the relationship between journalism and history and whether journalism really is a first draft of history. And also, like I said, the possibility of making predictions in this most unpredictable of election seasons. So Matt, in season four now of your podcast, you've gone back and taken a kind of long view of Trump's first term. As a journalist, I'm kind of guessing you don't often get a chance to kind of do that more reflective thinking. So I'm wondering if that process has changed how you see kind of both the United States and Trump in particular. It is such a luxury, you're right. It's it's not something that you often get to do. Uh, generally, and, and this was one of the funny things about covering Trump is because there is a new uh, bit of chaos every day. Uh, it kind of seems entirely random. We're talking about this, we're talking about, uh, you know, race, and then tomorrow we're talking about immigration, and then the next day we're talking about China, and then we're talking about Iran, and then North Korea, and then back to race, and then, uh, you know, Russia, there's a, you know, big Russia-breaking story, and it's completely chaotic, and it seems like there's no logic to it at all. But what we've been able to do with this, and, and this is the incredible luxury of it, is basically go, so... Uh, we're just going to talk about the race story. So ignore, so just rub out every single bit of the timeline that isn't to do with race. What was actually happening through here? How did it go from A to B to C to D? And uh, it really illuminates a lot of things about um, what Trump was doing. And and it, I guess it kind of um, illuminated for me that, that uh, it wasn't all uh, chaotic for Trump and that there was a few things that he really thought uh, were important and that he really wanted to do um, and, and went to a bit of effort to do them. 
he really, uh, he often, <laughs> he didn't really talk about these things all that much. Uh, but there were threads, and one of the main ones was the um, the trade war, the, the, the trade deal with, with China. And this was something that when you look at all of Trump's interactions with China in a timeline and ignore the big, you know, uh, you know the big, you know, will there be a trade deal today or will there not be a trade deal today and just look at what actually happened, it all makes a lot more sense. And, um, and, and Trump was really seriously wanting to do this. He wanted to get a trade deal with China. He thought that China would agree to give up a, a lot of their, uh, you know, naughty trade practices uh, and agree to deal with the United States on a fairer playing field and stop... Um, and get rid of the, the trade deficit that they built up. Um, China, looking back on it, never thought that they were going to do that. Uh, China sort of saw this from what, you know, looking at it in hindsight, saw this as a really good way of, of getting Trump to focus on one thing while they did a whole bunch of other things and he agreed to not mention any of those things as long as he, he could keep dealing with them on the trade deal. And, you know, why Donald Trump did that is a, is a whole, you know, a different kettle of fish. One of the, one of the funniest things that I found, uh, actually looking back at very early on in, um, in his 2016 campaign, I, I, I watched a few of his speeches, including the very first speech that he gave when he went down the golden escalator and gave that speech. Uh, and, you know, and the, the bits that were reported were about, you know, Mexico and, and that sort of thing. But he did this whole riff on uh, China and trade and going, they're currency manipulators and they, you know, they're ripping us off and they're stealing our intellectual property. And the fascinating thing is his, his audience are going, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and the audience is starting to talk amongst themselves. You can, you can hear them getting really bored and not paying any attention to what he's saying. And he's like, he's like wait a second, wait, 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 stop, everyone, stop. I really want to talk about currency manipulation. And eventually he sort of moves on from it. Um... And, and sort of gets on to, you know, playing the hits, I suppose. Uh, but, yeah, looking back on it, there was this really, there was this strong desire to do something about China's bad trade practices. And this is one of the things that, you know, you, you're really able to see is that there are a few real focuses for what Donald Trump wanted to do. Uh, he didn't achieve them, but he did want to do a number of things. He did get distracted by a lot of things, and we talked about a million other things, but there were a number of things that he wanted to do. He wanted to deal with immigration, and he wanted to deal with China trade. Uh, those were his big two foreign policy things that he went into wanting to do it, and he kept sort of semi-focused on it all the way through his uh, his first term. And uh, yeah, it, it was interesting to interesting to look back on it from that perspective. Um, and it was edu educative that it wasn't all chaos, and he wasn't all lurching from one thing to another. And there was some method to what he was doing. It didn't work, but there, he, he 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 did try to do these things. It sounds to me like you've almost moved from a strictly journalistic role to doing something like what we try to do as historians. But going back to, I think, the role of the media, that's something we spoke to Barry Casty about, about how the media has covered Trump. What I wanted to ask you is how you think the media should cover Trump, because obviously there are those issues around reflection and trying to stitch together a narrative of the Trump presidency. There are also, I think, some moral issues at play there. With how the media covers Trump. I think the media has... I think... Uh, um, 
I think Trump knew how to deal with the media. Uh, I think Trump really, really knows what to do and, and knows when to throw a dead cat on the table and knows when to do uh, something that will stop us from talking about X uh, and start us talking about Y and then he'll just give up on Y in, in, in 12 hours. But and at the same time, uh, you, you could also get the impression as we went through the, pre- the, the, the first term that um, the media knew that he was doing this, but they couldn't stop it because it's like Donald Trump comes out and goes, maybe I'll be president for 20 more years. He doesn't think that he's going to be tw- president for 20 more years. He just wants us, us all to go, what? Donald Trump is, you know, f- you know, uh, you know, shredding the Constitution. He can't do this. Blah, 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 blah. And we're not talking about whatever it was that he didn't want us to be talking about. Um, and I don't know what the lesson to, for that is because you can't not cover that and you can't not focus on that. Um, but, you know, I mean, it is interesting that you say that I'm looking at it from a a historian's perspective because I, I think that that is um, something that journalists should try and do and go, what are we going to, you know, are we going to be talking about this uh, in a year's time, in, in five years' time, once this story is over, is this going to be important or not? Uh, use that as a as a tool of trying to figure out um, whether you should talk about it today or not. Um, and I, that's something that I've tried to do um, in my day-to-day radio journalism in the sort of the, the latter um, two years of Trump's uh, term, I learned that lesson that I wish uh, the rest of the media would also learn, although many did, and tried not to focus on the dead cats and tried to focus on, all right, so this is going to arrive in the Supreme Court today and that's going to be important. And... Uh, Trump's going to talk about, uh, you know, Trump's going to pick a fight with um, a CNN reporter or something like that, or he's going to, you know, revoke a CNN reporter's press credentials for a day just to make us focus on that. But what we really should be talking about is the fact that he just failed in this Supreme Court case or whatever it is, um, because that's the important thing today. And I think, um, yeah, journal, journalists trying to, you know, there's always a thing about journalism being the first draft of, draft of history trying to look on it a bit more from that perspective and going, is this going to be important tomorrow? Or, or even the other thing is that I've, been, that I've been trying to do is let a few things happen and, 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 and look at, cover, cover the Trump presidency as sort of like a, a historian, but even if the history that you're talking about is only the last week, you know, let, let him um, revoke, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, do something in the in the press briefing room that's going to get everybody talking about it, and see if he's still doing that in a week. And if he is, then 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 we'll talk about it that day. You know, maybe, maybe we'll uh, you know cover it and we'll go. Okay, so this actually started a week ago. Bam, 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 bam. And and I think that's um, something that journalists. I mean, who knows if if that lesson is going to be important in the future? But it's something that journalists should try and do. Um, a bit. You don't necessarily need to be first on things, letting a few things happen and then coming back to it. You have to understand everything that happened. You can't ignore it, but don't necessarily report on it until you know whether it's important or not. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things that I think kind of encapsulates 
everything that you've just said is is the thing that you started the podcast with, which is of course is um is Russia and the Russia investigation because that was one of the things that Trump is throwing dead cats to try and distract from because it was it sort of plagued him from the for the start of his presidency. But it's also one of those things we had to wait. Like we had to wait for that investigation to conclude, but people are kind of scrambling to to be first and and to kind of get that news first. Yeah. So then I guess looking back at that that whole episode going back to what you were saying about kind of that longer view did did Russia matter uh well nothing mattered uh nothing mattered except for for the virus really uh you know um as as late as February everybody thought that the economy's good and so Trump will win um you know uh, it was only when the economy started to go down downhill because of the virus that there was any change in Trump's in what people thought was Trump's likelihood of getting re-elected um, and I think um, in hindsight we uh, you know we did get a little bit bogged down in what Trump's campaign was doing and how important each thing that Trump's campaign did was um, the important you know Having said that, you know, the Russia, you know, in the end, uh, it turned out that there was something to it. You know, Russia did uh, intervene in the election. They did uh, steal e- emails. They did leak them out at uh, politically opportune times. And it looks like from, uh, you know, Senate investigations and also from what is sort of left implied in the Mueller report that uh, Paul Manafort, at least, was coordinating to a certain extent with uh, someone who is referred to by the US government as a as a Russian intelligence agent, someone who's connected to Russian intelligence. So it was happening. Um, something happened. Uh, I don't know how important that was, but uh, it, certainly something happened with it. But it and it but I guess, it, you know, it was important for America to go uh, t- to realise that um, not everything that they see in their media is important. The important part of um, what America learned from the Russia thing is not so much uh, that you know Donald Trump had this Donald Trump Jr. had this weird meeting and uh, you know Carter Page what was that about and all that sort of thing. The important part was that you cannot you cannot trust just because uh, something is out there doesn't mean that it's real. Uh, just because something is trending on Twitter doesn't mean that it is genuinely important to anybody. Uh, and just because it's something is being shared on Facebook doesn't mean that uh, it is uh, accurate, real, or important either. And I think that was a lesson that a lot of Americans uh, gained. A lot of Americans absolutely didn't, you know, um, as the COVID pandemic has taught us. But I think a lo- I think a lot of people are a bit more um, uh, incredulous and a bit more skeptical of what they what is shared on their social media than they were in 2016. And there's a bit of a lesson. From, from the Russia thing. That was, you know, that, that lesson is really, uh, that that's the big lesson that I think Americans took from uh, what came out of the Russia investigation, which is that other countries can influence what we are talking about and you need to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, and 
I mean, there's there's noise about the Russians, well, not just the Russians, but um, the Iranians and the mm. Chinese as well, att attempting to do this again. In in light of that, in light of the the fact that you know at least some people and and journalists, of course, have kind of learnt that lesson about that min manipulation. Do you think it will? It, there's potential still though for it to have a similar effect this time around in this election cycle. Well, I mean, it seems like you know, I mean, we don't know until it happens, um, but it seems like. Uh, essentially what might happen here, and this is just, you know, from various reports about what people in US intelligence think Russia is going to try and do, uh, is they're essentially just going to try and back up the president's argument that the election is illegitimate. The election, the, the president has, for the last several months, outlay, outlaid, this is what I am going to say on election day and after the election. And... Um, it appears like what uh, Russia and maybe Iran are doing, again, I don't know, from reports that are coming out of US intelligence, is that they are preparing to try and uh, boost that message and potentially even provide some sort of uh, evidence for it. Uh, whether it's grainy footage that leaks somewhere, you know, of uh, ballot boxes being stuffed or thrown in a river or whatever it is or, you know, um, mail-in ballots being forged or or whatever it is, they, you know, have a history of doing this. They've, they've been, uh, you know, chucking, uh, you know, video of, of ballot boxes being forged into election debates since the Scottish uh, independence uh, referendum back in 2014. Uh, there was, you know, an attempt by uh, Russian state media to go, well, something weird happened here. Look at this video that happened in Scotland, even though it actually happened in Russia. Um, <laughs> uh, the ballot boxing video, the ballot box stuffing videos they were putting up were actually from Russia. Uh, but, you know, they, they have attempted to do this in the past. They've attacked elections after they've happened in the past. Um, you know, that's why, uh, you know, similarly with the Brexit referendum, they, you know, there was all this tracking done of Russian bot activity and the Russian bot activity wasn't leading up to the election. It was on the referendum day. That was when all the, the Russian bots spiked in their, um, their activity on the Brexit referendum day. They were aiming, uh, if the referendum went the other way, to be able to argue, look at all this evidence that the, the referendum was, was, uh, uh, was uh, botched or fake or rigged or whatever, in the end it went the way that they uh, were backing. They were hoping for it to go and so the, um, the activity disappeared. Um, but that certainly seems to be what, what is likely to happen this time. Um, it's much less sophisticated than what was done in 2016. But then again, you know, the, the fascinating lesson that, uh, the other lesson, I suppose, from 2016 is that uh, what happened in 2016 was a total fluke. All these stars had to align perfectly for it to work. They had to get into the DNC and into John Podesta's emails because they um, burned off all their DNC material in around the, D the, the convention in the middle of the year. So they needed something else. They also had John Podesta's emails, which was um, which they knew and, and, and could you know wait until late in the campaign to drop. They needed those things, but they also needed a candidate that was vulnerable to discussion about emails. Even if the emails that they were dumping out there 
didn't say anything interesting and didn't prove anything about Hillary Clinton being crooked. Um, you had a candidate that just in, in the American imagination, there's something weird about her and it's got to do with emails. And then at these key moments in the campaign, all these, you know, front page headlines in the New York Times are coming up with Hillary Clinton and emails put next to each other. And that was very effective. But if it, was, if it wasn't Hillary Clinton, then it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> If it was if it was Bernie Sanders emails or if it was uh, you know something like that, then everyone would have gone whatever you know. I don't really care what Bernie Sanders' campaign was up to. It had to be Hillary Clinton. It had to be um, Donald Trump running against her, uh, and and all these things had to align perfectly for it to for it to work. And I, I don't. It doesn't look like they have aligned in the same way. It seems like um, you know some sort of email access has been gained. Uh, potentially to, you know, this Ukrainian gas company or, or, or something. But it's just um, Joe Biden appears to not be nearly as vulnerable to the same story, which is essentially what is happening at the moment. The same story is being rolled out. And Joe Biden just doesn't seem to be as vulnerable to that and it's not working as well. Yeah, let's um, let's assume and also hope that those stars aren't going to, to align next week. Um a lot of your work has focused on Trump's inner circle, and I'd say you probably know a lot more about that inner circle and its internal machinations than a lot of Australians, although it is still quite a mystery to most of us. Mm-hmm. Assuming that Trump is voted out and leaves office quietly, I'm putting a lot of qualifiers in there, what sorts of consequences do you think Trump and those associates will face? I don't know. Uh, it's something that I think about a lot, uh, but I don't know. I think there's going to be, I, I, I don't know, uh, but what I think is going to happen is there is going to uh, be an argument made by some Democrats that uh, you need to have a, you know, whatever it is, a, a full-blown uh, government commission into the, the Trump era. Everything must be, uh, un, un, you know, every every stone must be turned and every little bit of... Uh, stuff about what was going on in the inside machinations of the Trump uh, administration must be uh, divulged to the public and uh, we must know everything and um, a large number of people will be arguing that Donald Trump at the end of this must end up in jail. Uh, But I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of rightful hesitancy to that. Um, Maybe not to to, to an investigation and there are a number of you know, big questions that remain about the way that Donald Trump ran the presidency. You'll remember um, last year during the uh, impeachment proceeding, there was, you know, this reporting that a whole bunch of the uh, transcripts of phone conversations between Donald Trump and uh, various world leaders, Vladimir Putin, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, that sort of, these, these guys had been inappropriately classified as ultra-top secret and put in a top, top, top secret server that nobody could ever look at. And I think um, that uh, uh, someone should look at what they, what, what, they, what they said. You know, what is it that Donald Trump uh, committed America to in conversations with these people, uh, particularly because, uh, you know, particularly from the, uh, the book of John Bolton, 
you know, as you know, as you know, you can decide for yourself how trustworthy how trustworthy you deem John Bolton to be. But John Bolton is is saying in his book that in private conversations with Xi Jinping, uh, you know, Donald Trump promised silence on uh, the erosion of autonomy of Hong Kong, and uh, he promised, uh, you know, not to uh, not to say anything about the Uyghurs going into the. Uh, re-education camps and, and all this sort of thing in order to get this trade deal from Xi Jinping. And, you know, we know about those things now, potentially, if they're true, from uh, John Bolton and his book. Uh, but what did he say to all these other people? Were there similar uh, guarantees given? And I think that certainly um, should be looked into. Although, uh, you know, once all this information comes out, and, you know, potentially Don, Donald Trump's business and his... Um, his business dealings and his, you know, tax background and uh, his interactions with banks and insurance companies and that sort of thing will also potentially look to be looked into because they already are being looked into by, you know, the Manhattan District Attorney and all that sort of thing. I think um, at some point the question is going to have to be asked uh, of Joe Biden, what are you going to do about this? Do you really want to be the guy who attempts to lock up your predecessor and I think that Joe Biden will uh, struggle to answer that question because there'll be a large amount, a group of his base who want him to do to do that. And but there's also uh, you know a, a large desire, uh, probably inside of Joe Biden's mind, not to be uh, like the president of the kind of country that does that. Um, and America is a country that. Um, up and you know, up until fairly recently, uh, lectured other countries at length on how you're supposed to be run, and uh, this is the way that you run a democracy, and you don't lock up your opponents, and you don't do this, and you and you have legitimate elections, and you have peaceful transferal of power, and we'll help you write your constitution if you want, and all that sort of thing. And if if uh, you know Joe Biden starts to attempt to you know prosecute um, Donald Trump for things that he did as president. Uh, that's going to cause big problems for America going forward on a foreign policy standpoint. I think Joe Biden will probably be very, very hesitant to do that. Having said that, Joe Biden has no control over what um, the Manhattan District Attorney does. Uh, so who knows where, where that will go. Um, but in answer to your question, I, uh, I don't think that America should become that country, you know, assuming that they find anything about Donald Trump that is illegal, which, you know, of course, is, is not a fait accompli at all. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> that was a very long way of saying who knows and I don't know. You're sounding like a historian now, like definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, you know, you know what, it, it's, um, it's, it's interesting that you say that about me because it is a couple of years ago, um, my uh, high school history teacher, teacher died suddenly. And uh, it was this incredible shock for his family and for uh, his enormous, uh, you know, diaspora of students uh, who were devastated to hear this news. And I went back and I started sort of thinking about the, the way that he uh, taught modern history. And I was not a particularly good modern history student, uh, but the way that he that he taught it and the way that he told stories um, that educated youth about things that are currently happening 
and I realised the importance of what he had um, instilled in me and the fact that I was using that every single day um, in my uh, in my reporting. And uh, I was like, that's a you know strange thing that um, I feel like any, any journalism lessons that I've learned have been outweighed by modern history lessons from uh, Tom Sajko. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's interesting you say that about me, that you, that you think that I'm doing it in sort of a historian way because it's uh, something that I've noticed about myself, you know, a, a, a couple of years ago when he died. No, I, I, think that's, I think that's a lovely story about yeah. his influence on you. And I think as, yeah, I mean, this is something I reflect on quite often because very long ago I had a background in journalism and I trained as a journalist. And I think one of the points of connection is that real concern with causation on the one hand. So you're constantly thinking about what, you know, what is causing, what's, what's playing a role in causing this sequence of events and also that constant interplay between structures and institutions and individuals and their agency, which I think Emma and I are going to get to in a, in another segment on this episode. Actually, one thought that I've had on, you know, one thought that, that occurred to me um, about the way that journalism is done is the, the, one of the interesting, because while the podcast has been going out, I've been doing a lot of interviews. And what happens in those interviews, with a few exceptions, is they is people want to know what's going to happen next. They really want to know what's going to happen next. What's going to happen if Joe Biden does this? And what happens if um, Donald Trump does that? And that is a valid question. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, one that is worth asking. But the amount of emphasis that is put on trying to predict based on what is happening right now, what is going to happen next, compared to figuring out the significance of what is happening now based on, you know, and the interesting thing is that people usually reach for history. They go, um, you know, you know, how unprecedented would it be for Donald Trump to lose this this election? Oh well, he's a first term president, and that means that blah 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 blah. Uh, but also the economy's down, and so that means that blah 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 blah. And I'm going to mix these things together, and I'm going to predict that this is happening. Um, and uh, it's interesting because I find uh, it because I, I don't care what people think about what's going to happen. You know, because people tend to be wrong, as is the lesson of the last four years. Um, and, I, and I do mean that as four years, because I'm including the 2016 election in that, um, which everybody got wrong in so many different ways. Not only were they wrong about what happened, they were wrong about what was going to happen immediately afterwards if Donald Trump was elected. Do you remember all the people who said that the uh, stock market's going to crash? Never happened. Never crashed. Stock market went, uh, here's the election of Donald Trump. Didn't care. Um, and, and, you know, people just, just suck at pr predicting things that are going to happen at the moment. And, but I find it far more interesting going, here are all these things that have happened in the past. Isn't it weird that it's happening again right now? You know, uh, that just blows, that blows my mind far more than uh, these are all these things that happened in the past. And so I'd say that they're probably going to happen again next week. It doesn't, that's not, not a particularly interesting thing to me. History, history as an explainer of what is happening now is far more interesting to me than as a, a tool of prediction. And that's, a, that's a, a flaw of journalism at the moment, I think, is, they, is that they focus too much on trying to figure out what's going to happen next. How is this going to play? You know, what is the election of, um, 
you know, what is the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett going to mean uh, for the election and blah, 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 and what's it going to mean for this, that, and the other? And, you know, 60 years of, of uh, you know, you know, 40 years of, uh, you know, her being on the bench, what's that going to mean? Don't know. You know, we can predict what it might mean in the very short term, but who knows, you know? Um, really, really, yeah, you know, because there's a million stories of justices changing the, the way that they feel and justices ended up ending up behaving in a different way than they were predicted to when they were appointed, um, you know, so who knows, really. But looking at the significance of what's happening now based on history is far more interesting to me. Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, yeah, I think... Um, I imagine it is for you, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, and I think I can ha safely speak for Emma here when I say that we both think that history is an incredibly poor... It's a poor predictor of the future and, you know, the, the only lesson that we would ever take from history is that the future is likely to throw up surprises. Mm. Is that right, Em? Yep, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think history can teach you about why something happened. Why did it turn out this way? Well, it turned out that way many years ago and that's, you know, people have had decades to look at why it, you know, why that happened. You know, Watergate turned out like this. People have had 50 years to look at the ramifications of it and look at, you know, why various individual bits of it happened. Uh, and so that can be educative of what we have learned so far about the Donald Trump presidency. But taking Watergate and going, well, and therefore that will mean that this will happen doesn't doesn't work at all, you know. So much, so much of, um, you know, the Russia investigation did rhyme with what happened with Watergate, but the outcome didn't, you know. The, the outcome of it was completely different. Um, to, to the way that to way, the way that Watergate turned out. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you you're talking about the process of actually looking back on history because that's you know that requires a lot of skills that historians develop over time, and I think that they can be they can be analogous to journalistic skills. And to just take that example of Watergate investigation, you know, historians will say I think typically that the critical difference was the role of Republicans in the Watergate investigation and their the pressure that they applied to Nixon and the defense that they they mounted of, of American institutions. And that was one of the, that's been one of the missing ingredients throughout the Trump presidency. Mm. And that's because, you know, we do, we are trained to pay attention to both those, you know, those singularities. So those, those real contingencies in history, but also those structures and those patterns and, you know, how they've developed through time. The other thing um, that's interesting is the way that, um, the existence of Watergate affected the Mueller investigation as well. As we've learned recently from Andrew Weissman's book, um, Robert Mueller was hesitant to do things because he was like, well, if we do that, then that's just going to trigger a Saturday Night, Saturday Night Massacre and um, then, you know, that's not going to serve anybody very well. So, you know, we should do this, that and the other in order to avoid all of us being fired and, uh, and um, everybody having to start over again. Um, you know, it's, it serves everyone better if is if we are, you know, we, this group, are able to get to the end of the investigation without all of us being fired. And the way to do that, the way to avoid what happened in, um, you know, in 1973 is to do X, Y and Z, um, which is not necessarily a good way of running a railroad, but um, it certainly seems to be the way that he he did it uh, from what Andrew Weissman said, which is interesting. Yeah, I know. I think that's a really important point is that, you know, history, history is something that can be weaponized. And in that sense, it's not something that you sort of, you know, 
move on from and you lock it up and then you just look to it as you need for your metaphors for what's going on it's something that people are actively using all the time and that's absolutely the case in you know in this presidency even though it looks like a presidency like no other Chloe, in our conversation with Matt, which took kind of a an, an bit of an unexpected turn, I think, and I think we got a, um, a, pretty, a pretty nice endorsement of history as a profession. Um, but when, when Matt was talking about this issue of stars aligning in, in 2016 and how the, the result that we got kind of required all of these events to fall into place at once, that, that has got us thinking about contingency and contingency, particularly in what we do in the, in the study of history. And so what I wanted to do was actually throw to Chloe, who is our resident historical theorist. I, I have to say I'm not very well, good at historical theory. Yeah, well, I don't know that I'm that good either, but I am a really big theorist. <laughs> that's that's so. also true. So what I, what I thought might be useful, you know, in lieu of us making predictions, because I think these two things are related, is for Chloe to really explain to us how historians approach contingency. Yeah, so I think um, when people talk about contingency, I think that often people will assume that that means luck, or that means that if we're talking about contingent events, we're talking about the real sort of random blue sky, deus ex machina events that sort of just drop out of the sky, you know. Things like, um, you know, a Supreme Court justice suddenly dying in the lead up to an election campaign. And we'll come, we'll come back to that in a minute, I think, because I don't actually know that that was a truly contingent event. So that's one way of thinking about contingency, which I don't think really captures the way that historians use the concept. And even people like myself, you know, because I mean, admittedly, my general approach to or the way that I interpret historical events is usually through a lens that's basically structural. So, you know, my my inclination is usually to look to sort of the structures and the wider context for events before I would look at, say, individuals and individual agency, which is something that, you know, I think if I were a historian of American presidencies would probably get me into a lot, a lot of trouble. Um, so when I'm talking when I'm talking about contingency, I think what I'm really talking about is how historical outcomes, so like in this case, an election result, depend on multiple factors that can, you know, that can intersect and align and cancel each other out and work together in multiple different ways, which makes predicting an outcome very hard indeed. So, you know, in this case, we're talking about an election where the outcome is is dependent on voter turnout, but not just voter turnout, voter turnout in particular states, the effects of voter suppression, the effects of, you know, things like the weather, like there is a known phenomenon of, you know, rainy days, um, rainy days dampening down election turnout in, in democracies where there isn't compulsory voting, the surprise death of a Supreme Court justice, like, as I said before, a pandemic, a president, you know, who contracted and then didn't die in that pandemic, contracted the disease and then didn't die in that pandemic. That's, you know, just listing off that array of events and weird occurrences that are coming coming during this election season. That's the way they combine makes it incredibly difficult to predict a result safely. And, you know, 
I guess that when I say that, it almost sounds like I think it's too random to forecast or predict. And I think anyone who listened to our episode a couple of weeks ago about the science or art of polling will know that I'm generally pretty sceptical of pollsters' methods, but I don't think that they're totally without merit. I guess what I'm saying when I talk about the way that the way that contingency works in the way that these events combine is that there are no predestined historical outcomes. And that seems pretty obvious, but I think that the confidence with which a lot of people will predict events in this presidency and this election perhaps suggests that that's not a lesson that that's a lesson that a lot of people have failed to take on board. And secondly, that prediction, if it isn't impossible, is really, really, really hard. And that's it's for that reason that when, you know, if you ever ask a historian what's going to happen in a particular election, they'll usually, usually they'll hedge and, you know, write you an essay instead. And um, I'm interested in if that's, you know, what your experience of that is, Emma, because, you know, while I can rave about theory, you're the person who gets asked all the time what's going to happen next in the Trump presidency when you speak to the media. Yeah, I do. And I um, I have this really cute line that I say about how I'm a historian, so it's not my job to predict the future, which um, journos absolutely hate when I do that. So they will ask, like there's, there's this imperative, you know, just as kind of Matt was saying earlier, there's this imperative to try and predict what's going to happen next. And it's, it's really stressful, honestly, because I'm constantly being asked, you know, what is this going to mean? Um, if there's a contested election, is it going to be like 2000? And, you know, you have to keep saying, well, this is all hypothetical. You know, I think if these conditions exist, maybe this is what is going to happen next. You know, if it is a contested election, then yes, it will probably go to the courts like it did in 2000. But it is not, you know, the only thing I can say to you is it's not going to play out in the same way. You know, history history doesn't repeat itself. Like I think often journalists want you to say, like, this is exactly what's going to happen, which for for a historian usually means that they want you to say this exact scenario is going to play out again, and these are the conditions that are going to lead to it. But of course, I don't want to say that, and I'm really reluctant to make predictions. You know, because precisely because of all the things that you've spoken about. But I think so many commentators are you know, willing to make those predictions are willing to say definitively, this is what's going to happen. You know, I have tapped into the kind of zeitgeist or I understand what real Americans think and therefore I know exactly what is going to happen. And I also find that really frustrating because for a certain type of commentator, and I think, you know, you know where I'm going with this, Chloe, making those predictions and getting them wrong all the time doesn't seem to matter doesn't seem to to hurt those commentators and I find that I find that incredibly frustrating but also I think what it does is really um you've used this word already Chloe is is really impoverish our discussion because it doesn't allow us to talk about exactly what you were discussing then those much bigger structural issues we focus instead um on very prominent individuals of course you know of course we're focusing on the president and the president the candidate for the presidency but what that does is is make it seem as though history is kind of up to great men. It depends what these great men do, how they behave to, to kind of chart the course of, of the world for the next however many hundred years or whatever. But I think, Chloe, what you're kind of getting at is that, of course, what those individuals do matters. It matters a great deal, but it matters in the context of 
the structures they're operating in. It, it matters what institutions they are heading. It matters how people in those institutions around them are behaving and how people outside the institutions are behaving. And that is a really complex conversation that is, I have to say, almost impossible to have in 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 Yeah, the and I think today. and I think it's one that that is incredibly complex and it needs and it needs you know, this is something I always say, it needs time and it needs space to develop. I think it's interesting, you know, you talk about a, an impoverished conversation about about agency and about the actions of individuals. And one thing one thing I've been thinking of quite a bit over the last few weeks is, you know, there's really, you know, there's really huge decisive moments in history. Like specifically, I've spent a little bit of time thinking about the French Revolution, which I know a fair bit about, also the Bolshevik Revolution in the early 20th century, because yes, I am a gigantic nerd. Um, But, you know, I think that if you look at events like that, then there is this interplay between these structures, between these trends, and between these contingent events, and then the role of the role of individuals, or the role even of collectives of, of collective groups of individuals, is to understand those and to seize and to take control of those events and take control of their momentum. They're not acting outside of those of those events. They're not sort of swooping in and changing things. That's you know, and that's that's something that really requires, I guess, a very closely focused sort of nitty gritty approach to history and to historical detail alongside a wider understanding of that that bigger context and those sort of bigger shifting forces that you know that are, that are lying behind history so is, how's that for a defense of our profession I, I, well i'm convinced you won't be surprised <laughs> to hear i think it's also imp- really important to remember that the people in those situations um didn't know what was going to happen. You know, they're, they're deeply involved in them as well and deeply invested in them, but they weren't able to predict what was going to happen. You know, things only seem inevitable once they've happened. Yeah, and I think this kind of leads leads us to, I guess, a bit of a plug for an op-ed that Emma and I wrote together in the Sydney Morning Herald, and it's come out on this Friday, which the t- the day, the morning that we're recording. And if anyone's read that, it's we're talking about exactly this issue, which is this interplay between movements, institutions, and individuals acting through those those institutions. To give kind of a I guess sort of a short breakdown about the possibilities for this election and. When we were writing sort of the final section of that, I think one of the things that we tried to do was we tried to kind of take the take the perspective of the historians of the future to you know offer kind of the narratives that might be told about this his, this this election, whether it does turn out that we have you know this huge voter turnout that puts a result beyond doubt and makes it impossible for Trump, as he has stated that he intends to do, to use the Supreme Court to win the election for him. Or alternatively, there might be a version of that story where, you know, this, this, I guess, rise of people power and this, you know, huge voter turnout actually isn't enough or it doesn't work in exactly the right way. So Trump can, you know, either win the election through, I guess, you know, the many means that are at his disposal through those institutions that he's quite successfully influenced over the last four years. So... You know, take putting on the historian of the future hat. You can see that there's, you know, either this there's potentially either a narrative of democratic resurgence, or there's one of, you know, institutional clampdown on on mass popular democracy. 
But that said, that's two versions of what might happen. And there are probably quite a few more beyond that that we didn't have space to talk about in, the, in an editorial in the SMH. That's right. And look, I also really hope that one of the things that we have conveyed in, in this discussion and really in kind of all of the stuff that we do is that we are not dispassionate observers. We're not, you've, you coined this phrase early on, Chloe, when we were sort of deciding how to frame this podcast, that when we're never striving for the false goal of impartiality, we are deeply invested in, in what is happening because what is happening is a moral question. You know, you can't kind of float above it and, and make calculations in your spreadsheet and pretend that what happens doesn't affect you and, and doesn't matter to you because it does matter. This election is a crucial tipping point and it will have really serious ramifications for us here in Australia and really for, for everybody in the world. It is about people's safety and it is about people's lives. And we should care about that. And I don't think we should have to apologize for caring about that. No, I don't think, and I don't think that that, that caring about it should be any sort of impediment to our, you know, to our doing good research and having, you know, well-informed perspectives on this. And, you know, I keep thinking back to our conversation with, with Lizzie, which was in our last episode. And Lizzie, first of all, talking about what it's like on the ground and, you know, talking about people who in the US who are genuinely fearful about Trump winning this election and what that will mean for their lives. And then but also Lizzie talking about how, you know, this wider this wider issue, which is really all that matters now in terms of international politics and really, you know, planetary survival, which is climate change. And, you know, Trump is probably the world's biggest impediment to effective action on climate. And I think to pretend that this is just, this is a game or this is in any way normal, I think I I find that really quite disturbing, to be honest. And, you know, I mean, yesterday, so, you know, Lizzie, I was quite affected by that conversation with Lizzie. And then yesterday, um, Emma, I actually messaged you and told you this was happening, but I was reading uh, Vanity Fair's profile of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and I actually, I, I burst into tears like halfway through when I was reading this part, section where she was talking about the re- very real fears of her constituents that they will be unsafe in another four years of Trump. This is something that we we can miss out on in Australia because we do have, you know, everything gets translated through these layers of news and through these layers of purported impartiality, that these are real people's lives at stake. And there is so, you know, this, and I, I, I just... I think it's important to be emotional about this and I think it is important to be invested in it and passionately invested in it and I don't think anyone does themselves any favours by pretending that they are better than that. Thanks for listening and if you liked what you heard in today's episode, don't forget we do have a weekly newsletter and you can subscribe using the link in the show notes.